We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Uh, last week, we, we started a study in this specific chapter. We've been, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we will finish this chapter really as a part two to last week. Similar theme, but in a contrasting approach. As you're turning there, I'll remind you that we've, we've, we've used this reference point before for the Gospel of Mark. Many people look at Mark as like a director of a movie. And it happens so fast. There's so many scenes and stories within stories. It's like he's taking his camera and he's highlighting one particular moment. And then he zooms out and he zooms into the next scene. And that's certainly something that you could see happening in Mark chapter 7 as he's approaching a new area of ministry to go to uh, people that are in a new town. Uh, But this morning you could also liken Mark and his approach to a songwriter. For those of you who are interested in music, you also find this style of his writing that you could almost see as songs or anthems coming out. And no doubt, many of you listen to music through radio or uh, your car stereo on the way in, and there's a certain style that is specifically developed for the main radio station to reach the masses. You know, it's like you turn on the radio and the radio is designed to give you the hits. And in some ways, the Gospel of Mark is very radio-friendly. I mean, you think about some of the stories we've, we've already looked at. Uh, not long ago, we were looking at Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's like an anthem for the provisions of God, the care of Jesus, the miraculous power of God. Uh, we looked at Jesus calming the storm. I think there's probably songs on the radio right now about the power of God to calm the storms of life. And you can turn the volume up. It's so inspiring. Today we are looking at a passage of scripture that you will not hear on the radio. This is not radio friendly. You will not hear Mark chapter 7 verse 24 in the version of a sign behind the field goal when you're watching football today. Uh, This is what a music fan would call the B-sides. This is not the singles. This is deeper into the catalog. And I say that as a music fan because often what you'll find is what is played to the masses on the radio, the hits, it can draw you in, but it wears out very quickly. And if you actually become an enthusiast for a particular artist or band, you actually want to go deeper into the catalog. And that is true also of just knowing Jesus. You can know him in kind of that surface level way from Christmas to Easter. You get the story and you can play the hits, but you're called to really know him. You're called to go deeper into the catalog of Christ, and today we've got the perfect invitation to get to know a side of the ministry of Jesus that is different than what the masses are going to hear about. This is an interaction that will happen specifically between Jesus and one person, and it is a story that many times people read this, and it has already been predicted from the stories that we read in Nazareth. There's reason to be offended by Jesus. This is one of those passages, if you're looking for a reason to distrust or not like some of the ways Jesus does ministry, then we've got the song for you. But this is also a time in the life and work of the ministry of Jesus that gives us such incredible insight in what it means to really love him and to really trust him. So with that said, we start in verse 24 of Mark chapter 7. And it says, from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. 
So throughout the Gospel of Mark, we'll develop certain themes. One of them is that ministry rest balance that we talked about in the beginning of Mark chapter 6. As the disciples were so busy doing ministry in the Great Commission, the first one, and they come back and they told everything they had done. Jesus says, you guys don't even have time to eat. Get away by yourself to a deserted place and rest. And of course, that rest was interrupted by the crowds of people as a theme that always found Jesus out. And so Jesus has been on a quest for rest since that Bible study that we did, and he's still looking to get away to be alone. And he has chosen a particular region that would suit that need well because Tyre and Sidon are outside of the commonwealth or the normal path of the children of Israel. They're actually in Gentile land. Now, that detail will come up in our story as something to pay special attention to, but the ministry strategy of Jesus right now is to push pause, to rest, to refresh, to get alone, and of course it says, but he could not be hidden, which means that he goes on this 50-mile journey north away from the Sea of Galilee towards a region of the, the land that would not have especially been expecting a Messiah or waiting for his presence, and he still cannot be hidden. And you could do an entire sermon and Bible study on the reality of the power and the presence of Christ and how it is not to be hidden. Even Christ in his own attempt to be alone, to be refreshed, it, it wasn't long before someone saw him and said, I need you and I believe in you and I want you. And this is going to be a contrast from all of the ways that the people that were in the land of the children of Israel did not have the same hunger as the ones who were outside the land. And it will be a contrast, as last week we looked at Jesus calling out the traditions of men for unclean food. We now look how Jesus interacts with what the Jewish people would have considered unclean people. And this is a detail that we'll continue to read about as the main character of the first act of this story continues. It says, He could not be hidden for a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him. And she came and fell at his feet. One of the indicators that Jesus is about to work with someone or do something on behalf of the faith of someone who needs him is this phrase that Mark loves to use, they fall at his feet. And that will be contrasted by people who miss out on the power and the teachings and the wisdom and ultimately the salvation of Christ because they just know him too well, or they don't trust him enough to humbly lay themselves prostrate before him. And yet, so many times in the ministry of Jesus that we've been studying, those who come in the humility to just lay before him and beg him are often the ones who he actually works with. And before we get into the interaction of this woman falling at his feet. Let's look at her biography for just a second. It says she's a woman, and we'll get more details about her personal story, or at least some details about her life, but she's got a great need. It says she has a daughter with an unclean spirit, and she believes in falling at the feet of Jesus that the miracle worker that she's heard about, even in a distant land, he's never been in this area doing ministry specifically, she believes that he could be the solution for the grave problem that she has in her life. And before we go any further, we're going to do a third pause in the Gospel of Mark study to call our attention to the reality of what Jesus came to bring. We have now our third 
reality check with what it means to believe in the power of Christ over unclean spirits. The, the story is, has not been without specific interactions that Jesus has specifically with the spiritual realm. Remember in chapter one, right after the 40 days of fasting and overcoming the temptations of Satan in the, de- in the w- in wilderness, he comes back, he teaches at a synagogue, his very first public teaching, and what do we have? An unclean spirit that he has to have the authority over to cast out. Very first thing that he does is deal with the demonic realm. And then not long after, as he goes on his ministry tour across the Lake of Galilee, he meets Legion, and Legion is this demon-possessed man who's tormented by just a a demonic presence that could be equated to a thousand soldiers of Rome. And he's not only a demonic tortured in his own life, but he's torturing the town that he lives in, and he comes and he falls at the feet of Christ, and the authority of Christ is displayed as a spiritual authority. And now, not long after, we have another person who has come with a deep need, and it is not just physical, and it is not just theological, and it is not just a moral dispute that this person is in. They have a deep need for Christ to be authoritative in the spiritual realm. Now, we read all of that, and the 21st century audience thinks that's a first century problem, and we're so glad that Jesus dealt with it. But in our modern day, we've got real problems. We, we, we need to understand the theology of soteriology and salvation to understand how we're saved, and then we need to understand how to preach and how to do church and the mechanisms of the organization. But all that spiritual stuff, you know, it's not something that we necessarily deal with now. Except, of course, you cannot do any of the things that we're doing right now without believing in the reality of the spiritual realm. We were all just singing, Hail King Jesus. And if you were singing that in spirit and in truth, you were believing in faith that Christ was in our midst receiving that in the spiritual realm. And we come and we pray for our missionaries. And we lay hands on those who will do the work of the ministry to offer care to our church. And we do all of those with the reality of spiritual presence of God, hearing our cry, and then moving on our behalf in a spiritual realm. And you cannot pray... You cannot expect the word of God to come alive in your reading. You cannot worship in the presence of God to the fullness of your joy unless you believe believe in the spiritual God who meets you in the spiritual realm in all of your approaches to him. And it also is worth reminding every time that we've looked at one of these encounters that Christ has with the demonic realm, we pull us back to the theology of the church to remind us of the battle that we're actually in right now. Look what uh, the Apostle Paul says to the the church in Ephesus and to church in Calvary, Boise right now. We read it in each encounter with the demonic realm previous, and we're going to read it now, so that we would have a proper lens and view of the world that we live in and the redemption that we long for. It is not simply moral, and it is not simply theological. We live in a spiritual age. Paul says to the Church in Ephesus, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places." 
God is spirit and truth. And if you really want to understand the chaos and the confusion and the division and the wars and rumors of wars and the, all of the tragedy that exists outside of the comfort of our sanctuary, you cannot stop at a political solution, an educational solution, or a simple moral building up of our culture. What is actually happening behind all of the scenes unfolding before our eyes on all of our news feeds is that there is a spiritual and a demonic war happening in every area of our world, and there is one authority over it all, and it is Christ Jesus. That's something that we cannot escape. If you are here at all to understand the reality of Christ, you are here to understand the reality of spiritual light versus spiritual darkness. And we will see, once again, that the authority of Christ has a power that is unimaginable against the darkness of our age. It is with a word, it is with a touch, it is the, the, the pleading of the demonic forces themselves that bow before Christ knowing that he has all authority in heaven and earth to cast out demons. But before we get to that, we have to get to the interaction that our, our main character just introduced, a woman with a daughter with an unclean spirit falls at his feet. We have to get to know her slightly and then we have to listen to an exchange before we get to the healing. Because it is in the exchange that really makes this more of a B-side passage of Scripture. And we'll all have to pause and say, okay, what does this actually say about Christ and us? It says in verse 26, The woman was a Greek Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Matthew has a parallel of this entire interaction from the Pharisees arguing with the traditions of cleanliness that we looked at last week, all the way to this woman falling at the feet in the exact same footprint. And Matthew gives us a detail about this woman that will also be helpful in our reading of Mark. It says, Behold, a woman of Canaan came from the region and cried out to him, begging for his help. And it says that Jesus didn't even respond to her. The details that Mark and also paralleled by Matthew give us help us understand the exchange that is about to happen. But uh, just to, by way of biography, she is a Gentile. That's one of the most important things to know about this woman. She is not part of the household of God in the nation of Israel, which was a big deal at the time. This was not who most Jewish people would have looked at as a character that would be exalted as a hero of the faith in the eyes of the Messiah. What we have is a beautiful 2020 lens to look back and say, wow, she did a great job. In her day, she had no business asking the Jewish Messiah for anything. And that is why the Matthew account helps us because he says she's from Canaan, this region of, of the world where God had sent Abraham into to take the land and make it the land of promise. And all the Canaanites were considered cursed and to be, to be, uh, to be banished from the land. She would be the lowest rung a woman from Canaan in the land of Gentiles is asking the Messiah for help. And it's not that she asked once. It says that she kept asking, which is why, again, Matthew helps, because Jesus didn't respond. Uh, let me introduce you to a Jesus that you're not going to see on the mainstream radio, that most of us have this idea of Jesus meek and mild. You need anything, you let him know, and he's just happy that you actually asked, and he gives you everything you want when you want it. He's a really nice guy which he is, but he's also a real person who, when on a quest for rest to be alone, is actually trying to be alone. 
And when putting ministry on pause to be in a region where there shouldn't be a lot of call for Jewish people looking to the Messiah, he's actually trying to not do ministry. And so he doesn't respond to her at all. And this is our first clue as to why this woman is one of the heroes of the story. In the simple word, she kept asking. Many times you can read this and look at this woman's approach to Christ as an entire philosophy and pattern for how we are supposed to be people who approach Jesus through prayer. And one of the ways that we learn from her first and almost foremost is that she did not stop seeking. She didn't stop asking. Even in the silence that Jesus gives her, she asked again and again and again. And at any point, a sermon could stop and it would have spoken to the person that needed to hear that portion. And so some of you, the sermon needs to stop and you need to hear this philosophy for how to know God. God is not a vending machine. And your needs, though important, do not have the same timeline as the perfect sovereign will of God allows. And so one of the things that we learn from this woman that we can take with us, hold to, be refreshed by, be renewed by, is that the God that we are seeking, we will seek and we will ask and we will approach for the rest of our lives. And we should never stop asking. We should never think that we have made all the exchanges that we need with God and his silence means that we are class dismissed. Some of you are sitting in silence with God today. Some of you, that silence feels burdensome because in your silence you're, you're pleading on behalf of someone else for God to move in their life. Maybe you're pleading on behalf of a son or a daughter or someone you love so much that you would fall at the feet of the miracle worker for, to have him help. And silence can be daunting. And yet the sermon for you is she kept asking. I love what it says in James chapter 5. Again, a, a picture of what a just a fervent prayer look, looks like. In James chapter 5, it says, to confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. A pattern for prayer. It's effective when you pray, especially when you pray for someone else. And we'll see that in this woman and also in the character that we'll close with. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man will avail much. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. I love that he prayed for that specific region of the land. It, it, one of the references you'll hear to Sidon, where we are right now, is in Elijah. Elijah was in this very region crying out to God, and he said, God, I pray that there will be no rain, and God heard his cry. And then everyone who prayed for rain would have to wait three and a half years. It was a picture of the delays of God. And this also is a picture of how God does delay with purpose. Not that he won't hear and not that he won't respond and not that he won't heal, but that he has a different perspective on everything that we're going through than we do. And I also love that we can see that Jesus is someone who is just like us in some ways, his humanity can bend towards persistence. I love the metaphor of God as a father and us as children. And if a children knows how to ask for things, how much more should they ask God for things? And it's especially true of how I understand as a father, persistence working. Because I've got kids who know how to ask. And through my silence, they're undeterred. And they ask again. And even when I say no, they ask some more. 
And when I'm being extra spiritual, I see in them an example of a healthy prayer life. And I also have in them the perfect antidote for how we get to our next passage because one way that I have learned the lesson of asking and asking and asking and asking over again is through my oldest daughter asking for a dog. And don't children just love dogs? They say the children gets the puppy and the dad gets the dog, but I digress. She said, can I have a dog? And I gave her silence. It's not the time or place to get a dog. There's never a good time to get a dog. But, you know, you don't tell that to a child. And she asked, and she asked again. And I tell you this day that we do have a dog. <laughs> and I'll use that dog as a great way to understand what is going to happen in the response of Christ to this woman. Because as she continues to ask, and as you continue to seek, you do bend the ear of God, and he does listen. Like a father with persistent children, so too does God listen to the fervent prayer of his people. And it says in verse 27, after silence and delay and persistent asking, Jesus finally says to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. So now we have... A reminder where we started, this is a B-side track. This is not a radio track. You don't have the children and the little dogs on Air One or K-Wave. This is something that could be, if we wanted to, a reason to really be offended by Jesus. Is he calling her a little dog as he shares what we could say is just a little tiny parable, a story that helps us understand a spiritual truth? Yes, if we are interpreting this parable into who's who, the woman in this scenario would be the little dog. And that could be offensive. And she certainly, uh, although you wouldn't know it from this text, has many biblical commentaries in 21st century culture telling her all the reasons she should be offended. But as Jesus often does, teaching through parables, it's only with those who have ears to hear that actually understand what he's saying. So before we get to her cunning reply, we look at what Jesus is getting at when he speaks of children and dogs. Well, the first thing is just how true the parable is. As a dog owner, and I hope you would agree with me if you're a dog owner with children in the house, there is a hierarchy to the way food is distributed between children and dogs. Although the dogs would prefer you forget that, every time a meal is made, it is for the children. There is a desire for a parent to care for their children. And if there happens to be leftovers, we all know dogs love human food and they can stand in line. But it would be wrong for a parent to make the food and as the children approach them hungry, say, just a second, I really want to take care of the dog and then I'll get right to you. That would be wrong. If you do that, repent. That's not good. In fact, I was thinking about this last night. In other ways, you see the hierarchy, putting my kids to bed. I put my kids to bed. I read them a story. I pray for them, each one of them. I kiss them on the cheek. I put the, the covers right under their chin, turn off their light, and I say, don't get out of bed, and then I go off. And directly, I do the same thing for the dog, except it's much easier. I say, there's your crate. Now get in. And I shut the door, and I leave. Nothing else, because there's a love that I have for both of them, and it wouldn't even be compared in the hierarchy from children to dogs. So the parable rings true. But what's the theological truth? What, every parable is taking a heavenly idea and bringing it to earth, and it's good for us to understand. 
because it will help us understand why this isn't offensive at all. It's actually gospel good news. The children in this story are, in fact, the children of Israel. They are the ones that Jesus has come to first. It is the pattern of his ministry. He goes from the wilderness to where? To the synagogue. And he goes from Bethlehem to where? To Nazareth, to a Jewish area. And he works as much as he can to serve the people of God in Israel. Why? Because it was the design of God. When God was bringing forth the plan of redemption for humanity, he started with one man named Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. He says to Abraham, leave your country, go to a land that I will show you, leave your mother and your father, and bring everything into this new land, and I will make you a nation. A man who had no children would be made a nation. And then he says something very important. And through your nation, all of the earth will be blessed. And this is the design of redemption that we live in to this day. Abraham listened and obeyed, father of faith. He is, in fact, made into a nation. He has a son who has many sons, and they go into an entire nation that is given the oracles of God, the truth of God's word, the promises and the prophecies that would point all of us to the coming one, the Messiah that these people were waiting for, all come through the nation of Israel, a nation that truly was holy and set apart with God's special favor. And the design was to fulfill all of the word of God and all of the promises to the nation of Israel so that the nation of Israel would be an ambassador to the world to bring the gospel to bless the entire earth. And Jesus was living that mission out in real time, going first to the synagogue and then expanding the ministry out by sending his disciples to go bless the nations in the Great Commission. And it's a pattern that Paul would take the Great Commission and he'd see that as well. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It has the power to save to the Jew first, to the synagogue, to those who were given the promises firsthand so they would be ambassadors to the rest of the world, and then also the Gentile, which means the children at the table, the nation of Israel, and the Gentile is just waiting for whatever's left over. They're waiting like puppies at the table. Whatever's left over that these children don't want, we will be waiting happily to receive. And now we understand the details that Mark gives us. She was a, she was a Gentile woman. She was waiting at the table for the Messiah that had come first to his people to bring the gospel beyond the boundaries of the nation of Israel to Boise, Idaho, to this day. And what do we find? In, in, in another layer of how genius the parable is, just last week we looked at the kids' table, the Pharisees, those who were waiting with all of the oracles of God in their hands and testing everything that Jesus did by the menu of the things that they were waiting for. And the parable continues, doesn't it? And kids sit down at the table and they look at the plate. They're just examining the food. The mashed potatoes are touching the peas. I don't want it. <laughs> and the dog's like, you think I care if the mashed potatoes touch the peas? Put it all in my mouth in one bite. They look at the food and they say, is this, is this chicken or steak? No, no, I only eat steak. I don't want the chicken. And children at the table go hungry because they are so determined to get exactly what they want. Not so with the dog. And what did we see last week? All throughout the gospel of Mark, as Jesus comes to his own, they don't want him. 
In Nazareth, he could do no mighty work there. A prophet is not without honor except in his home country. And it was a call to repentance and reverence for us who now sit at the kids' table. We've got the word and we've got the oracles of God given to us. And what happens so often? Oh, the sermon was a little bit long. I give you grace for that. I'm sorry about that. Eh, it was all right. It's a little long. The music was a little loud. Eh, it's all right. Church is a little big. Parking lot is a little hard to find. I don't know. The church age that we live in, it just seems so, it's just so hard. And I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to go to church anymore. And the children at this children's table are so picky that they don't eat. And then you have those who are desperate for the power of God to move that they'll take a crumb. And this is how we now understand the genius of her reply. Because her reply, in the lens of a 21st century, could have been to stand up and walk out and say, then I actually don't need you. You're so offensive and you're so rude. But she says what? She says, yes, Lord, I'm still with you. I'm still asking. I haven't given up. I'm not going to give up. Because even the dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. And I love that my daughter talked me into getting a dog, if nothing else than for me to understand with technicolor the beauty of the reality of this. My dog now knows exactly what child will leave what deposit on the ground. If nothing else, it's been an investment in the cleanliness of my house because every crumb now has a living vacuum cleaner that will follow these kids around. And the pickiness of my children has turned into the blessing of my dog. Is there a better way to understand the hard-hearted nature that religious people have towards God? And what God is really after, he says, I oppose the proud who are so picky about every detail of the law and tradition and washing the outside of the plates and looking at everyone, examining if they wash their hands. They're picky eaters. He opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. The joy of this moment is the woman saying, I accept my position at the table and I still expect food. And from this, we have one of the great heroes of the journey that Jesus is on towards the cross. And surprisingly, once again, it is not those who we should have expected. Those who knew the scripture, those who knew the story of Abraham, those who knew the promise of God extending to the nations. It's a woman in desperate need. It's a woman who throws out all of the details that she doesn't have time to comb through so that she can plead on behalf of her dying, demon-possessed child. And where there is great humility, there is the hand of God that is ready to move. And so we have lessons. I think you could study this interaction. You could find lessons upon lessons of how we should approach the majesty and the grace and the mercy of God with whatever he gives us and be grateful. But I've narrowed it down to three for the purposes of at least this morning. Number one is beware of being offended. This passage of scripture can be used in all sorts of ways for people to be offended by Christ. And as they read scripture, it is only one chapter removed from Jesus going 
to his hometown and offending the people who knew him too well. Offended by the way that he gave silence to someone that he could have helped. Offended by the title that he equates to this woman, a dog. Offended in a way that could make someone turn their back and say, I want nothing to do with this guy. I'm going to leave. And if they do that, and if you do that to Christ, you are missing out on the very thing that this woman clung to because she wasn't offended. I've never been spoken to like that in my life. How dare you? I will just have to have a demon-possessed daughter and I'll take my problem somewhere else. She did not have time to be offended. If any of you would like a further homework assignment on the challenge of being offended and what it brings or what it negates you from in the journey that we are all on with Christ, there is a great book called The Bait of Satan. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it, but I'll share a quote with you now. It says, many who are offended are unable to function properly in their calling because of the wounds and hurts that offenses have caused in their lives. They're handicapped and hindered from fulfilling their potential. And it's most often because a fellow believer has hurt them. Their offense has kept them from healing. This, this woman's offense would have kept her daughter from healing. But in fact, the person that we're potentially offended by is the key to all cleansing of bitterness, hard heart, unforgiveness. Because we are going to end our service by holding in our hands for all of you who believe and partake with humility and confidence that this is your hope. You will hold in your hands a bread, a cup and juice that represents the body and the blood of Christ. And Jesus says, anytime you get together, hold that in your hand and remember me. Why? Because our entry point into those doors was not being religious. It was not our own merit. You did not get welcomed in and sit, sit in the sanctuary because you have impressed God. It is because you have been forgiven. And while Christ hung on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God against all ungodliness, and each one of us holding our sin against him on the cross, he cries to the Father in heaven, forgive them for they know not what they do. He took all of the ways that we have hardened our hearts, disobeyed him, violated his perfect will, and, and created a wake of destruction in our path. He looks down and says, I forgive you still. And as you hold in your hand the power of God's forgiveness to you, you also cleanse your heart of all offense. To anyone who has been forgiven much power to forgive. And when we hold the cup, we don't only stand on the hope of the forgiveness of God freely given to all who accept it. We also pray and seek to be ambassadors of his forgiveness to others. Humiliation, lesson number two. This is a theme that we see throughout Scripture. We see it in the wisdom writings of the Proverbs. We see it in the interactions that people have effectively with God. And it is this humiliation comes before exaltation, always. 
And when we use the word humiliation, it isn't in the sense of just having your total life laid before you in a way that would cause you to fear and tremble at what people think of you. We're talking about humility. We're talking about putting yourself in the proper position of the creator God. The living God breathes worlds into existence. The power over spiritual realms, the power over all of creation, the power to heal your body, the power to resurrect you from the grave. How do you approach him is the question. My wife, if you guys follow our our prayer chain, you'll know that there was a woman named Daniela that threw her back out so badly that she's now being prayed for. She has four kids. Two of them are in preschool. Two of them are in uh, elementary. That is Daniela. That's my wife. So if you've been praying, thank you. And the reason I mention it is because it's not often that my wife asks me to put her on the prayer chain. In fact, she called me earlier in the day when her back went out. She said, something tweaked my back. I don't know what's wrong, but I'm sure I'll be fine. And I said, okay, well, let me know if you need anything. And then about two hours later, she said, will you please have the entire church pray for me? This has gotten really bad. And that's the moment I knew that she actually was desperate. When you ask for prayer, when you say to God, I actually cannot heal myself. When you come to a place of desperation that brings you to your knees in prayer, you have met the humiliation of life. And we ask the question all the time, why don't we pray? Why, why don't Danielle and I ask for prayer for every single moment of our life that we're in desperate need of the power of God for? Because it's true. I can't do anything without Christ. And yet it's a broken back that brings me to my knees. Or why don't you pray? The areas of our life where we are prayerless, we are prideful. It's the areas of our life that we don't think we need the help of God in. It's the areas of our relationships and our families and our job and our work. And every once in a while, we're so humbled by life that we beg someone to pray for us. That is the only way your life will ever be exalted. In all of the prayerless ways of life where you've got everything on autopilot and you can do it on yourself, you can never actually be lifted up by God. He opposes your pride. But when life gives you something tragic, when something happens to your life to bring you off of your own ability to be the Lord, you are now learning the power of humility. E.M. Bounds, who is essentially the, the author of all books on prayer in, in some form or fashion, he says, humility is an inseparable condition of effectual praying. Our prayers must be set low before they can ever rise high. Our prayers must have much of the dust on them before they can ever have much of the glory of heaven in them. Humility is the key to knowing God. Don't run from all of the ways that you could be desperate for him. It is, in fact, the key to actually knowing him. Lesson number three. And this is the lesson that will tie last week to this week and move us forward. And I pray a humble worship of God and God alone. It is mercy that we rely on and not our own merit. We rely on the mercy of God for everything that we have. It is his mercy and his mercy alone. It is mercy, his mercy, his mercy that gives you life breath in your lungs, thoughts in your mind, 
opportunities to go and do well with the abundant life that he wants to give you. It is not your merit. It is not how well you clean the outside of the dish, how well you clean your hands before you eat, how well you know the scriptures, how awesome your theology is, how well attended your church is, how well you can sing the songs and know the verses. All of those things should be applauded by the mercy of God. But we walk through those doors and we worship him in the position of him owing us nothing and yet giving us everything. And this can be a hard lesson in the religious sense because as we get better at religion, we tend to think we're actually better people. And it's the same as the day you were saved. You are what you are by the grace of God. It's grace that saved you. It's grace that carries you on. You have nothing to boast about. It's also a hard lesson in just the world and the country we live in because we have been given a country God has placed us sovereignly in a place that affords us many beautiful rights. I love the rights that we get just by living in the land that God has placed us in. And yet, every single one of you will meet God face to face. It will be at a time that you're not exactly planning for. So it's important that we think about this now. And when you meet him face to face, you've been appointed once to die and then comes judgment. And do you know what you'll stand on? You will have no rights to stand on. You will have no freedom of speech in the presence of God. It will be useless to ramble on about all of the rights that you had in America and access to heaven. You have no rights to bear arms. They'll be futile, I promise you. There'll be nothing that they bring you in that moment. And all of the things that we stand on as inalienable rights now will mean nothing when we see him face to face except our right to his sovereign and free grace. And this is all that the woman had. The woman had no status, no hope, and no response, and she relied on the mercy of God to see the power of God on display. It is our, the mercy of God and not our own merit. And so then he says to her, the power of God on display, the will of God bent towards the persistence of this woman Verse 29, for this saying, well said, dogs do get food. And I do have a plan to go beyond the table of the children of Israel. And for you, I'll do it now. The demon has gone out of your daughter. With a word, with a promise, he speaks and it's true. And as you wait in the silence of God, know that you're waiting on the God that in a word, he speaks and it's true. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out of her and her daughter lying on the bed. I love what J.C. Ryle says. Hopeless and desperate as her case appeared, she had a praying mother. And where there is a praying mother, there is always hope. May we be people who cry out in an intercession for the power of God to move in our world, in our country, in our city, in our family, in the lives of sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters, God bends his ears to the cry of his people and he seems to especially love when people are pleading on behalf of someone else. And it's with that we'll look very briefly at the final story of Mark chapter 7 because in the woman we see an answer to the question, what do you actually deserve from God? And the answer is definitively nothing, but even a scrap from the table is all you could ever ask for and it's all you could ever need. It is the power to answer the requests of your life. 
And now the question is, what can we do about it? If you're convicted to pray more or to be more uh, thoughtful for others, to seek God more fervently, there is another lesson that it's not only the mercy of God and not your own merit, but it is only the power of God. Your only hope to see your life come alive by his spirit is in fact God himself. And so we have another story giving us now a living parable of someone who could have never done anything to see himself healed. In verse 31, it says, Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of a region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee, still continuing down that road of Gentile land. And then it says very keenly, Then they brought to him. Once again, we see a band of friends, a mother pleading for a daughter, friends pleading for a paralytic, friends now bringing to the Christ someone who could never have helped himself. And this man was deaf and had an impediment in speech. And they begged him. Of course they did, because the man can't speak. And he can't hear the amazing wisdom and power of the teachings of Christ. But they begged Christ on his behalf to put his hands on him. And so the mercy of God once again on display, it says in verse 33, then Jesus took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears and spat and touched his tongue. All right, once again, not necessarily radio friendly, but there's something happening here that gives us insight into a deeper understanding of who Christ is. Then he looked up to heaven and he sighed and said to him, Athatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. A man that could not speak and could not hear is now fully healed for all to see. And what do we find in this story as a living parable? We have questions that abound that, again, sermons could spend entire months looking at this interaction that Christ had with this man. Why did Christ pull him aside and touch his ear and spit and touch his tongue? Well, practical answer would be maybe a call to any of you who have ever been in a foreign land and not know the language or spoken to someone that has trouble speaking. And sometimes you have to defer to charades. And that's one commentator's answer here is that Jesus is explaining to him what he's going to do through hand motions. He's touching his ears. He's touching his tongue. And that's probably a good answer. But of course, there's a heavenly truth that's happening here as well. And one thing that's definitely happening is that Jesus is spending intimate time with an unclean person. And what does he do? Last week, the religious people wouldn't in it so much as touch an unclean food. And now Jesus takes someone who is unclean by religious status. He is unclean physically. And he touches him. He reaches into his life and he touches him intimately on his very own tongue. And in doing so, he's giving us a picture of not just one man's healing, physically, but of the healing that every single person in this moment and forever will always need from Christ, which is to open our blind eyes, to open our deaf ears, and to give us tongues that can actually proclaim the goodness of God. And that will not happen unless Jesus reaches in and touches an unclean person. He takes your unclean mind and your unclean ears and your unclean tongue and he reaches you with the power of the Holy Spirit and it is by God's grace that we proclaim him at all. If you confess him with your lips and believe in your heart that he's Lord, you're saved. And how do you do that? 
with the power of God making you come alive to cry out to him. And there are those, again, the sermon stops. You've never known God. You've never read his word with any insight or power. It's just a book on the shelf. You've never listened to a sermon in a way that the Lord was speaking to your heart. Here's the reality. You can come to church with a friend. You can jump in the car and you're all going to the same place and they can drag you here. But it is not until you have cried out to be born again by the power of the Spirit of God that you will ever hear his voice. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. My people proclaim my lips. You want to see the goodness of God as you wait for him in your silence and in your pain? Pray that he'd open your eyes. Pray that you would see what he sees in the timeline of your life, that what he is doing is good and it is well according to the perfect plan that he has for your life. Oh, that our eyes would be open to the sovereignty of God. Oh, that our hearts would be open to the perfect word of God this morning. Oh, that our ears would listen when he speaks. But yet, it is only true for some of us. There are some that the words that are preached in this morning right now will fall on deaf ears and the power of God and God alone can save you. And the story finishes where we'll finish as well. He says it commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more they commanded, he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. This could be another lesson that's good to look at the example of children. Why do children always do the exact opposite of what you try to tell them to do? I don't know. But parents, amen. Whenever my kids are sad, I'm like, don't laugh, don't laugh. And then they start laughing because they always have to do the opposite instinctually. And it seems like oftentimes people do the opposite of what Jesus says. I mean, we've been told to go and share it to the whole world, make disciples of all the nations. And we listen to that and we're like, well, I want to do a private devotional first for a couple of years and maybe someday I'll get to it. These people here don't say anything and they look around and they're like, is he listening anymore? Tell everybody. But why would Jesus say don't proclaim his goodness? Why would Jesus tell people not to evangelize about his power and his miracles? I think it's important for us to have some clarity on what Jesus was getting at. And I think first and foremost for this story and for us, we have to remember the mission that Jesus was on. Jesus was on a mission to the cross. This is confusing even for his closest disciples when he says, I must go and be betrayed, put to death and rise on the third day. And so when Jesus says don't proclaim physical healing, in some sense, he's staying on mission. Because the miracles are really only given to us to show us the power that he has to do greater things. And Jesus did not come simply to bring physical healing to all of us who would meet him. That all of us would come to him with our ailments and our blindness and our hurts and our pains and our cancers and our flus and our flu-like viruses and say, heal us up, Lord. He heals us so that we would trust him to know the greater mission, which is to raise dead bodies from the grave. And this is the mission that we're all waiting on. And this brings clarity to the times that we're waiting for the physical healing. He did not come simply to heal broken bodies. He came 
to resurrect dead ones. And as we wait in our brokenness, and all of us will have our ailments, we'll have emotional pain, we'll have physical ailments, and all of us will still be appointed once to die, we wait for the greater mission. We wait for what we proclaim to all the world is that death has been defeated, and the grave is empty, and Christ rose again, and all of us who have his spirit have the same spirit of resurrection in us. That message we evangelize and we proclaim. But we do not proclaim simply a message of healing, physical, because it's a deeper mission that Christ is on. And then he says, finally, they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And this is a phrase that these people rightfully said about Christ that I hope will stick in our hearts wherever Christ takes each and every one of us. As we wait, as we see confusing times, as we have the list of reasons to be offended, as we live in an age of deconstruction and a church that seems to be on the crosshairs of every person's reasons to not believe, we stand on the truth that Christ does all things well. And one of the things that he now does as we wait on his return, as he builds his church, washing her by the cleansing of the word, sanctifying her so that he, she can pre, be presented spotless and without wrinkle. And he does so well. He is building his church well. And he is calling your life well. He is sanctifying and cleansing you as part of the bride of Christ. And he is removing those parts of you that aren't part of his perfect will for your life and he is building you up in the spiritual gifts that he's given you, and he's arranging the timeline of your life to walk in his goodness and represent an abundant life, and he's taking you through the valley of the shadow of death and trials and tribulations, and you're walking through pain and difficulty, and all of it he is doing well. If he is your shepherd, you can cry out to God and say, you do all things well. I belong to you, so I am well. And if you're looking for further encouragement, there is a song called It Is Well With My Soul. If you haven't listened to it lately and you're needing to hear a message that it is well, even in the midst of waiting and difficulty, that's a song that you should play as an anthem of your week. And remember this, it is well with your soul, not because of your merit. It is not well with your soul because you made it to church and you did the things that you're supposed to do to impress God. And it is not well with your soul because of all that you can do to meet God in his blessing of you. It is well with your soul because Christ is your shepherd. It is God's goodness and his goodness alone that all of us can stand and proclaim as we take the elements of the communion and worship him. It is well because he is good, and he is faithful, and he has power to heal. And if we get one tiny crumb of his sovereignty and his goodness, we have all that we need.